kind of cool place to stay out of the heat. However, <clears throat> we're grateful for the few of us that can be here. We're anxious for those that aren't. Don Ost called me this week, said he was going to be here today, but maybe because of the heat they backed off. I don't know. Uh, there's probably others in that situation as well. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, as we approach your word, we ask that you'd teach us to apply your word to our lives, that we would feed on your word as on the bread of life, that we would drink deep of your Holy Spirit because you've promised that your spirit would become in us a fountain of living water springing up unto eternal life. We want to claim those promises today. We want to feed on you. We want to prepare ourselves to feed those around us. We're supposed to be feeding the world around us on your living bread and on the water of eternal life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so if you don't mind taking your Bible and turn into John chapter 6, we're not going to try to read it all. It's long. <clears throat> we are going to read some parts. I'll remind you <clears throat> what's there. John chapter 6 begins with uh, Jesus and the disciples and 5,000 guys and their families have shown up and it's getting to be lunchtime and nobody's got any food except this one little kid. And Jesus multiplied that bread and fish and made it into enough food for 5,000 men plus their families plus the disciples. And when they picked up the scraps afterward, there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers from one little kid's little take home, take home from lunch, take lunch from home lunch. <clears throat> they didn't have brown bags then. I don't know what he had. Uh, so we read that. And the people were real impressed. <clears throat> Starting in verse 14, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They knew there was a prophet that was promised to be coming. They didn't know much about him. Uh, Moses had promised him. Uh, he had been referred to over and over throughout the scripture. But they knew he was coming. And they said, This has got to be him. Verse 15, Jesus perceived their thoughts, says Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. They weren't satisfied to say, well, this is that promise, that, that the fulfillment of promise. They were going to take matters into their own hands and make him king. <clears throat> but when he saw that that's what they were planning to do, he departed again into a mountain by himself alone. So he hid. He went off into the hills and just sat down and waited. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples uh, went down to the sea. And they got into a boat, <clears throat> verse 17, and they went across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Jesus was not with them. Uh, he, after things got dark, he caught up with them by walking on the water. That's a whole other story. We're not going there today. But it says they were 25 or 30 furlongs. A furlong is an eighth of a mile. So, you know, we're talking three miles, three or three and a half miles out onto the Sea of Galilee when Jesus caught up with them walking on the water. So the next day, the people got looking around, still couldn't find Jesus, didn't know what had happened. Some boats came to where they were in verse 23. The people grabbed those boats and took off and went across the Sea of Galilee and went over to Capernaum themselves looking for Jesus. 
Yeah, that sounds good, right? People are looking for Jesus. The question is, why were they looking for Jesus? What were they after? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because they knew his disciples took off without him. And they knew they caught the next boats out. And Jesus wasn't with them, and he wasn't with the disciples. How'd you get here? Jesus didn't answer their question. <clears throat> it says Jesus answered them, but he didn't answer that question. What he answered is why they came. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate the bread and were filled. Everybody got enough to eat. There have been 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus their wives and kids. The, the, the word there when it says 5,000 men is specifically the Greek word uh, andros, which means uh, a male human being, not anthropos, which just means people. <clears throat> He says, and you are all filled. He says, you're here because you want more bread. Verse 27, he says, labor not for the food, or King James says meat, but it, King, James, King James English meat just means food. If they want us to talk about meat like we mean meat, they say flesh. Uh, <clears throat> he says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but that for which that, oh my goodness, let me get this close enough I can see. I got to get new glasses, I think. But for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So he says the, the food that lasts to eternal life, you can only get from one source, and it's me, it's the Son of Man. He says, For God has sealed it, <clears throat> sealed him for that purpose. And then the people asked Jesus in verse 27, or excuse me, yeah, 28, he says, then they said to him, this is quite a jump to me, he just said, you need this eternal food. Their question was, then what do we have to do to work the works of God? He didn't say anything about work. He offered to feed them eternal life. And they said, well, what do we got to do? All right. Jesus answered, in verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Now this is an important passage. If, if you haven't memorized it, please do, because <clears throat> what he's doing is pointing out that works do not save you. He says, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Now he says it lots of other places. But the fact is, here's a bunch of people saying, what do we have to do physically? What do we have to do religiously? What do we have to do to please God and get in good with him? And we haven't changed over the years. Virtually all man-made religions center on that idea. What do we do to make God like us? What's the problem there? The answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do to make God like you. What Jesus did at the cross is the only thing possible in the history of the universe that could get us in good with God. Why? Because we're lost sinners. And Jesus' completed work at the cross is the only thing that could change that. And he answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he hath sent. Okay? That's what gets you in good with God. You place your trust in the one he sent. <clears throat> And what was their response? Oh, good, let's do that. They said, therefore, 
what sign do you do that we should believe you? Guys, this is the one you, you just were going to make king by force. You thought he was the, the coming prophet because you saw the miracles. And the next day, you challenge him to his face and say, well, where are your credentials? Why should we believe you? Unbelievable. And yet we do that too. We're constantly looking for more direction from God when he's given it. He's given it in its entirety in his word. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe you? What do you work? What work are you going to do that makes us believe you? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And apparently the he they were referring to is Moses, because Jesus answered, verse 32, and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Now last week we read John chapter 1, verse 4, and it said, In him was life L-I-F-E, life, and it, the life was the light, L-I-G-H-T, of men. I know they sound the same coming through a microphone, but they're not the same. That this life that Jesus offers, that he is that life, and we read John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only source of life, and he's the only source of light. He says... <clears throat> The true bread that came down from heaven is he who came down from heaven and gives life, L-I-F-E, unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Well, guys, fine, we'll take that. So Jesus said to them, and this is the famous quote, John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. <clears throat> well, what's that talking about? <clears throat> the rest of this chapter, or most of the rest of this chapter, Jesus extrapolates on this idea of him being the bread of life. <clears throat> he talks about that my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And many people have built on this, this chapter the whole idea of the Eucharist that the bread in our communion service becomes the literal blood of Je body of Jesus and that the cup becomes the literal blood of Je Jesus. That's, that's folly. When Jesus gave the Lord's Supper, which is later, it's not in this chapter at all, well, when he gave that, that cup and, and the bread, he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Well, his body wasn't broken yet. No bones were broken at all, but his flesh was broken. Uh, and obviously the bread was not his physical body because he was breaking that physical bread with his physical body and handing it to them with his physical hand. And the cup was not his blood, nor was it going to become his blood because he says this is this, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. Uh, excuse me, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The, the blood wasn't shed until the cross. 
That's when the New Testament began. We think of the Gospels as being part of the New Testament. They were not. They were part of the Old Testament. They were the transition between the Old and the New. And what we see is Jesus teaching and preaching and preparing the people for this transition into this new covenant or testament that was going to come through his blood at the cross. And it was consummated at Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came because that was the other, that was the sign of the covenant in this age is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Every single believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit in this age. That was never true before. Okay? When, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, back in John chapter 1, verse 29, what lamb was he referring to? Well, obviously the sacrificial lamb, probably the Passover lamb, because later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, if you want to look that up, it says that Jesus himself is our Passover. Okay. That he was the one whose blood was shed so that God would pass over us in the judgment. So what did they do with that Passover lamb? I mean, obviously they killed it and they smacked his blood on the lintel, which was overhead, and the two doorposts, which are on the side. And I love that picture because it's inescapable. When you take that hyssop out of that bowl and go smack, 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 I don't care what else you do, you've made the cross. And it was 1,500 years before the crucifixion. So these people huddled under the same blood of the cross that you and I are, are covered by. The difference was their sins were covered by that physical four-legged lamb. Our sins are taken away by the sacred chosen lamb of God that Jesus was. <clears throat> their sins were taken away by that same lamb. But what else did they do? You see, they, they put the lamb on the lamb. They put the blood of that lamb on the lintel and the two doorposts. But what else did they do? Well, they roasted that lamb, and everyone in the household ate of that lamb. Why? Because in so doing, they confessed that that lamb died for their sins. Personally, that he was the sacrifice for them. Personally, they were laying their hands by faith on that sacrifice and say, "This is for me." Okay. They partook of the lamb in his death. They profited by the lamb in that they didn't have anybody dead in their household in the next morning. They went ahead and feasted on him for the rest of their life. And they proclaimed his death every time they took Passover, every year after that. They partook of the lamb. They profited by him, and they proclaimed him. That's what we're supposed to be doing, too. Okay. How do we partake of the Lamb? We've been called to partake of the Lamb, just as the Jews, the night of the original Passover, were called to partake of the Lamb. When they dipped the hyssop into the blood and smacked it on the lintel and the two doorposts, they were unknowingly looking forward to the crucifixion. We knowingly look back to the cross when we take communion. It's still a commemoration, still a memorial, just like theirs were. <clears throat> But the point of their eating that Passover lamb was they confessed that he died for their sins. Now, I have occasionally run into people that hated hunters because they must just love to kill, and, and yet these people ate meat. And I think, wait, 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 wait a minute. So do you think that you buying a steak at Safeway when it's on sale or Winco or whatever, 
somehow absolves you from the guilt of that animal's death because somebody else killed him, somebody else sliced him up, somebody else froze him or wrapped him or whatever, that makes you okay? See, I eat meat, and I have many, many times killed my own animal and butchered it and cut it up and prepared it for cooking. Anna and I have done it together. Uh, but even if I didn't do it personally, and by the way, I don't like killing things. I, when I raised chickens, they were all pets to me, and they all came running anytime I came walking out. Trouble is that one last day when I came walking out and they came running, it turned into a bloodbath because it was butchering day. Okay? I didn't like that. But I do eat meat, and I recognize that that's part of the process. If I'm going to get animal protein, no matter how I got it, some animal had to die for me to get it. See, if I go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, that chicken was raised and butchered and cut and wrapped and frozen and rethawed and seasoned and cooked all by people I never met and I never will meet. And yet, by me eating that chicken, I took part in his death. I partook of his death. <clears throat> Was it the physical eating of that sacrifice that saved him? that night in Egypt? No, it was the faith of placing the blood on the lentil and the two doorposts. That's what God asked them to do, along with the eating, yes. But for each family, that blood had to be on the lentil and the two doorposts, or somebody was going to be dead in that household in the morning. God saw the blood and passed over that house. Nobody died there. We're called upon to place our trust in the shed blood of Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, this is another good one to either write it down or memorize it. Romans 3, 25 specifically says that Jesus is set forth as a propitiation. That means a sacrifice that satisfies the righteousness of God. That's literally what it means. A satisfying sacrifice. We would call it a settlement. If the judge handles, hands down a decision and you're required to pay such and such to the person who's taking you to court... That settles it. They can't take you to court for that again. They can't say, no, I wanted more. It settles it. But this was a, on the basis of our righteousness before God. It was a propitiation, which means a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that satisfied the righteousness of God. And he was set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood, specifically. That's why Romans 3.25 is important. When I ask somebody, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? They may reply, well, I believe he died for the sins of the whole world. And that is a reasonable reply, but it doesn't answer the question. So I ask again, yes, but did Jesus' blood pay for your sins personally? And some of them continue to hedge and say, well, he died for the sins of the whole world. <clears throat> so at that point, I begin to believe they have never partaken of the lamb. They haven't personally eaten of the Lamb. They haven't personally trusted him as their own Savior, only in the generic sense. He's the Savior of the world. That's, that's good in theory, but not to be taken personally. No, it is to be taken personally, and that's the issue. Jesus is the bread of life, and for him to do you any good, you've got to eat of him. And I don't mean taking communion. <clears throat> we partake of the Lamb the moment we personally trace, place our trust in Jesus' blood at the cross as full payment for our own sins. Our partaking in communion is just a reminder and a personal testimony of that fact. 
It says we do show the Lord's death until he comes. So we testify of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his second coming when we share in the Lord's table. Also, we're reminding ourselves of our unity in Christ, that there's only one source of that living bread. When we share together, we're, we're not drawing any circles in the sand and saying, well, I'm over here, but you're over there, and never the two shall meet. No, we're either at the foot of the cross or we're not. There's only one place to receive Jesus as our Savior. <clears throat> we're all born again into the same body of Christ. So how do we profit by the Lamb? We're called to a continuing feast, it says in Scripture. Not just a one-time meal of a long-ago sacrifice, nor even a once-per-month nibble on a single morsel of bread or a teaspoonful of grape juice. We're supposed to be having a continual feast. How do we feast upon the living bread? Now, there's a song I learned years ago. It says, I've been feasting on the living bread. I've been drinking at the fountain head. And whoso drinketh, Jesus said, shall never, never thirst again. What never thirst again? No, who never thirst again? What never thirst again? No, who never thirst again? And whoso drinketh, Jesus said, shall never, never thirst again. Again. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Okay, how do you make it work? Okay. A lot of our songs, if you listen to the words, you suddenly realize, I don't think I know how to make this work. I remember as a new believer seeing some song that said, now I'm happy all the day. I, I think those were the words. It's a hymn that we sing. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not. I'm depressed about half the time because I have suffered from depression ever since I was about 15. I needed to learn to, to walk in the joy of Christ. I needed to learn to walk by faith, and I hadn't learned it yet. I was only about a year old in the Lord, not, maybe not even that. <clears throat> How do we feast on the living bread? Where do we drink deep of the fountain of living waters that's promised in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39? We'll be going there in a minute. But there are some clues to the answer to those two questions scattered through the Bible. And right now I'd like us to turn to Isaiah chapter 55, right in the middle of your Bible or slightly to the right. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read just verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7 just to save time. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. He says, Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he who has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now, if I only read these first two verses, I can at least see that I'm to come to God for both the food and drink he offers. But read on, let's see what else there is. In verses 6 and 7, he tells us how to feed on that feast. Verse 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked... That's us, sorry, that is us, we're sinners. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we still have a sin nature. 
let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. There are people right in this community that teach unless you do some outward thing, it's not sin. You can think all you want as long as you don't do something about it. That is not true. God says over and over that the thought of folly is sin. The thought of the wicked is sin. And right here he says for the wicked man to forsake his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. This is talking about a believer. It doesn't say come to the Lord for the first time. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about return. Come back to him. Confess your sins. Read his word. Pray before him. Spend time with the Lord. Feed on him. This is how you feed on the bread of life. He will have mercy upon him and to our God. He will abundantly pardon. That's what it says in 1 John 1, 9, too, in the New Testament. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a believer in Jesus, you've already received the fountain of living water. And you've already begun to feed on the bread of life. But we are called to continually turn to him and confess our sins and to walk with him in the light. In 1 John 1, 7, he says, if we walk with him in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. That's how we eat of the bread of life and drink of that living water. Notice that God requires repentance from our old self-centered thoughts and actions before the blessing of God can flow. And there is a time limit. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. We only get one shot at life. Use your remaining time wisely, profiting by the lamb. Make it profitable. Dig in. I had a guy at work tell me, well, you know, I, I, I pray and I, I read a verse every day. And I thought, a verse? And I didn't say that. I just said, is that the way you eat? He said, what do you mean? I said, you go to the refrigerator and get two grapes and maybe later get a little piece of a carrot and come back later and get, get a couple of beans. He said, what are you saying? You think I ought to read more? I said, yeah, man. It's all food. If you're hungry, eat. And he did. And God's been changing his life. It's been 20 years since I talked to him about that. And his life has changed around. His marriage is good. He's He's in the word. He's wanting to serve in his church. I didn't do anything. God's word did. God's word, feeding on God's word, is what gives us the ability to move forward and grow. As a believer in Jesus, you've already received that fountain of living water. You've already begun to feed on the bread of life, but we're called to continually turn to him, confess our sins, and walk with him in the light. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Whoa, going to grow? Got to eat, right? We used to tell the kids that. You're going to grow up big and strong. Got to eat your dinner. You know, God's telling us the same thing. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that we are to believe in the exceeding great and precious promises in God's word that we may be partakers of the divine nature. We used to tell the little kids, you want to grow up big and strong like daddy, you need to eat your food. We want to grow up big and strong like daddy. We want to be partakers of the divine nature. I want to be like him. I don't want to be like me. I want to be like him. <clears throat> Jesus said more than once that they that thirst should come to him and receive the living water. Let's turn to John chapter 7. Just turn over a page here right from John chapter 6 if you've gotten back there. 
John chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, believeth. Oh, I see. That's what he wants us to do. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 explains that. It says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should, future tense, receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, but Jesus has been glorified. He's already died for our sins. And the day you trusted him as your Savior, you received the Holy Spirit. And he says that's the source of this unending spring of living water springing up to eternal life. Every single believer is sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Every single believer has been called upon to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 and we're called not to quench the Spirit, but to walk in the Spirit. That's what we're told to do. So the written Word of God is where we're to find our food, and we're to drink of the Holy Spirit as we read, as we study, as we pray for understanding, and as we seek to obey Jesus, the living Word. We're also to find refreshment in the flow of the Holy Spirit between the saints and the fellowship with other believers as we rejoice together in the person of Christ. Have you ever noticed that? That when you're fellowshipping with another believer over the word, around the person of Christ, there's a flow, a mutual flow of blessing as the Holy Spirit is operating between you guys? It's connecting between you? That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's why at the end of every service when I say fellowship around the person of Christ, it means as opposed to fellowshipping around your new crop of mushrooms or whatever it is, you know, we, we get pretty caught up in our things. You know, I make violins, but I don't spend a lot of time talking about it here at church because that's not where the Holy Spirit is flowing. When people ask me about it, yeah, I can bend their ear till they get tired of it, but... That's not what we're here about. We're here about Jesus. So the written word of God is where we find our food. And we're rejoicing together in the person of Christ. So how do we proclaim his death until he comes? Now, yes, we do that in communion, but that's not, a, that's not the only thing. That's a testimony, a reminder to ourselves and to anybody else that's interested that Jesus did die for me personally. <clears throat> there are people still today who try to turn that into a pattern of works, a sacrament that you have to do to please God. That's baloney. That's not what it's about. He says, as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. It's a commemorative feast. He's laying out a commemoration for us to follow. He was still living in his body. The bread was definitely not, nor did it somehow become human flesh. Jesus did not teach cannibalism. Okay, And there are people that actually teach that today. I was I was in a church for a funeral of one of Anne's mother's relatives, and the priest was talking about Jesus, our victim, that we're grabbing him and cutting his throat. You know, yeah, he's our victim. No, he's not. He went to the cross willingly and shed his blood on purpose for me. He's not my victim. He's my Savior. Because they were saying that he was being sacrificed right then and there. Hebrews says he died once for all. He did not need to be re-sacrificed ever. 
You guys think about this. This is serious stuff. So I was not talking about that. The original Passover on the night before the Israelites left Egypt was literal. And had they not done exactly what they were told, then the judgment of God would have fallen on them just as surely as it did on the Egyptians. There would have been somebody dead in every house. But every Passover feast since then has just been a commemoration. There's no continuing threat that if they don't hold the Passover just right, somebody's going to die in their household. That's all over. <clears throat> it's still required of the Israelites year after year, but it was strictly commemorative. Faith and obedience have been required in all ages for all believers. Now in John chapter 6, going back to John 6 where we were, <clears throat> Jesus continues as they're having this conversation with the people about the bread of life. And by the way, people were getting offended by this. I think they were starting to catch on that he was claiming to be God in the flesh. And it says many of them left him at that point. But in verse 63, he says, it is the spirit <clears throat> that quickeneth. That means it gives life. The Old Testament, the Old English word quickened means to give life. It's used for the resurrection. Uh, it is the spirit that quickeneth or brings life. The flesh profits nothing. So communion, as special as it might be, can't possibly give life. And yet those churches literally teach that it does. I've got a book at home where the guy says that by taking communion, you receive the Holy Spirit. Sorry, not true. <clears throat> he says, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. That's where our focus needs to be. <clears throat> It's intriguing to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to keep the feast. It says that Christ is our Passover in verse 7. And then it says that we are to keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Chuck, when you're buying that unleavened bread for our communion, do you check to see if it has sincerity and truth in the ingredients list? You don't. Oh, my goodness, we're doing something wrong, aren't we? Why? Because you can't bake sincerity and truth into bread. That's not what it's about. It's not about physical bread. It's not, it's not that at all. Sincerity and truth have to do with how we deal with God's word. Physical bread can't have sincerity and truth baked into it. But as we study God's word and teach God's word and attempt to apply his word to our lives, we can either do so in sincerity and truth or do it for any, any number, of a number of other motives. There are those who deliberately twist God's word to their own advantage. Some even among evangelicals when they're really, really trying to prove some point and they're willing to push and make a scripture say something it really doesn't say in order to make a point that was eh, maybe not valid to begin with. 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17 says that we're not to corrupt the word of God. Now, New American Standard and New International versions say there are some who peddle, like when you're uh, peddling grocery or peddling lemonade. You're, it means to sell. It means you make it a commercial product. It says there are some who peddle the, the word of God as a commercial product. I think NIV spells it out that way. <clears throat> King, King James just says corrupt. Well, I think that once you try to turn God's word into a business, like a money-making religion, 
then you've already corrupted God's word. And corrupt is probably a pretty good translation. Peddle is pretty clear. If you're, if you're buying and selling Jesus, so to speak, like as a stock market, uh, you've already gone across the line. You're not doing what he said. What did God say back in Isaiah chapter 55 about coming to the water, you who have no money? Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a free gift. That's why we quote, quote Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's free. It's not supposed to be a business. <clears throat> and I suspect that we're very likely corrupting God's word whenever we start to turn it into a business. The word of God is supposed to be a free source of food and drink for all who come to it in faith. When we turn it into a business, we've already contaminated it just by our wrong motives. Even if what we're saying is true, we've made it questionable because of the motives that we're approaching it with. The bread of life is free to the hungry soul. The invitation of God in Isaiah 55.1 was to come and eat without money and without price. And the final invitation in the Bible in Revelation 22.17 is whosoever will let him come and drink of the water of life freely. It's a free gift. And we're to invite others to partake of that free gift. We're not told to invite people to church. We're told people to, to invite people to Jesus. You know how to partake of Christ. You've already done so yourself. You know how, because you place your faith in his shed blood at the cross, and that's all it took. You can share that with other people. Incidentally, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it says how God feels about our attempts to be self-sufficient in our self-made wisdom and philosophies. He says, my people, and he's speaking of Israel, he's speaking of saved people. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Living water means flowing, fresh, clean, living water. <clears throat> and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns that chopped holes in the rock to save water in, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God considers it to be a horrible, unbelievably bad error when we believers trade God's word for any other source of wisdom or nourishment. It's bad enough that we're trading that which is active and fresh and alive and flowing for that which is stagnant and contaminated, but the cisterns that we choose can't even hold water. The wisdom and nourishment that we thought we were gaining in the exchange turns out to be nothing but dust and ashes. If I go to humans for human wisdom and supplant God's word with human wisdom, I don't care whose it is, then what I'm going to find when I got done is dust and ashes. There won't be any flow of the Holy Spirit through that because it's not God's word. We're supposed to be sticking to God's word so that we have this flow of living water. Jesus, the living word, is to be our only source of wisdom and nourishment. We need to fix our hopes on him alone for all things. And he's the living bread that we're to offer to those around us in personal evangelism. We can't feed those who are not hungry. If you try to offer Jesus to somebody and say, oh, I, I don't want to hear it. I've got my own religion. You think, okay. You know, what I wanted to share for you in a sentence is that you can have eternal life right now. You don't have to wait till you die to get it. If they're still not interested, you can walk away. 
But if they say, wait, 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 how, how? You can't do that. Yeah, I can. If you've got a Bible, let me show you. And then you can show them in their scripture that Jesus said you can have eternal life now and that God says he wants you to know that you have eternal life now. At that point, they're either going to be interested or they're not. But we know how to do that. We know how to partake of the living bread. We don't offer our church. We offer Jesus. Evangelism is nothing more complicated Please remember this. Evangelism is nothing more complicated than one beggar telling another beggar where to find free food. That's what evangelism is. Now, you've enthusiastically told somebody where you bought your new shoes or where you had your hair cut or about a book you just read or the car you just bought or a song you like. That's evangelism too, but it's pointless. I mean, who cares in the long run what kind of shoes somebody wears? Can't we be enthusiastic like that about Jesus? Can't we share with others the hope of eternal life? You know how to partake of the living bread. You've already done it. You know how to profit by that feast, and you're learning to do so more consistently, especially those of you who are coming to the evening Bible studies on Sunday nights. You're studying the Word, and some of you have told me, I'm learning to understand God's Word. Great. That's what it's all about. But we need to learn how to consistently proclaim his death and his burial and his resurrection and to offer the resulting feast to all who are listening. It's way too easy to just simply keep the food to ourselves and not share it. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you to open our hearts to the world around us and let us share the living bread and the living water in compassion for the lost souls who are all around us. Make us reflections of your light in this dark world, and a source of life by your word and by your spirit. Give us grace to live for you in Jesus' name. We're going to sing one more song.